I'm Ryan Pack. And I'm Nicole Barlow. And this is Soundtrack for Life, where we talk to a guest about a soundtrack that they feel connected to. Today, we welcome back pop culture writer and co-host of the InSync podcast, Rachel Brodsky. Welcome back, Rachel. Woo! Thank you for having me back. You were on our episode earlier um, where we talked about Dirty Dancing. And um, j- just in case people don't know about InSync, why don't you tell them a little bit about that? Sure. So the whole first season of InSync is wherever you get your podcasts now. And um, we're kind of in a little holding pattern between season one, planning out season two. But we um, premiered in last April. And um, the whole InSync experience is... We kind of we we narrow down. I am my co-host Aviv Rubenstein. We narrow down like one great on-screen needle drop, whether it's in a movie or on a TV show. Like if something, if a if a needle drop, a song to screen placement really resonated in the past, we want to break down the the way that that song came to soundtrack the moment in the film, and we want to talk about. We do a little behind-the-scenes discussion of how the song got made and the, how the movie or TV show got made, and just sort of how. And then we sort of bring them together, and then we have a lot of really cool guests, like other pop culture writers, like myself. Sometimes we get the, if we're lucky, we get the actual uh, music supervisor to talk about how they got the song into in, uh, into that moment and um, sort of what it was like working on that project at the time and yeah we just have a we have a good time um like i kind of bring my music journalism background and uh, aviv is a screenwriter and a musician so he kind of brings like the the film history to the fore and uh we you know we've got it i think we're planning some really cool stuff for the uh the premiere of season two tbd but um we like in our first season, we covered Can't Hardly Wait. We covered um, Shrek and All Star. Let's see, um, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion with Time After Time. Um, what uh, I think, I think perhaps our most listened to episode was Armageddon, and I don't want to miss a thing. That, that was a really an fun one. Crackers scene, probably. <laughs> So yeah, it's a good time, and uh, so it's asterisk in I N sync at Y N C. And while you wait for season two of In Sync, you can also subscribe to Rachel's Substack. Ooh, thank you for plugging. <laughs> yeah, um, you can subscribe to my recently launched Substack. It's called "This Is Not a Test," and um, I would love. I'm trying to build it out with more interviews with people I find very interesting. But for the moment, um, it's kind of a platform for me to write the critical essays around whatever is kind of making my brain tick in the moment. So for example, um, my first Substack entry was right around the drop of Britney Spears' memoir. And um, the, the internet was coming to the I guess second wave realization of Justin Timberlake being not everything we thought he was 20 years ago. <laughs> and so I, that was my entry essay. And since then, 
I know I've written, you know, written some thoughts on why uh, change makers in music stop changing and why the Golden Bachelor resonates so much. And uh, recently, I wrote some thoughts on Six Feet Under, my favorite show of all time, and um, kind of pegging it to it's now um, streaming on Netflix because as opposed to just HBO. So a whole new, you know, speaking of speaking of shows with incredible soundtracks. So if you like, you can find my uh, my Substack and appreciate any eyeballs. <laughs> Rachel is brilliant and entertaining in a variety of formats, so you will not be disappointed. You're also one of our favorite people to talk to. I'm really glad that you're back. Thank you for doing this. Um, Dirty Dancing was one of my all-time faves, I think. Um, my pleasure. To talk about Lazy, first of all, but then talking about it with you made yeah. it so great. Um, why have you picked Pretty in Pink for us today? Oh, wow. So good question. It's such a like spectrum of answers because like I love looking at this movie. This is one of my all time favorite movies to look at. This is like as as the Gen Zs say, this movie is so aesthetic. Oh, aesthetic! You could play this movie like, and I think I've seen this done actually. Like if you played this movie mm-hmm. in a bar, like silently, mm-hmm. I feel like you would still get so much out of it, and you would still hear yeah. like the sax and the train. Yeah. Um, in some ways, like this movie is so literal, which I think we'll get into. <laughs> like like the Andy Molly Ringwald character literally lives on the wrong side of the tracks. Right. Literal. <laughs> um, but um, I just loved looking at this movie, like what like just growing up is uh, growing up in the like 90s and 2000s. I think that people around our age i think we're like in a similar age realm we really grew up idolizing pop culture zeitgeisty movies um from the 80s and today it's like kids watch movies from the 2000s and that kind of fills up well not to say that they don't also revisit the 80s but the 80s was was like our look back era and i just loved the style like i grew up i'm i don't work in fashion and I've never been I guess a fashion expert of any sort but like I've always idolized um certain fashion aesthetics if you like whether you know in college I was a huge fan of uh, Alexa Chung style <laughs> as you and and like I've always been a huge fan of like Patti Smith style uh, mostly in her younger years i think today she's kind of got more of a of a uniform that i'm not sure i would want to wear just yet but maybe <laughs> when you know i'm her age then i would you know really pop on the blazer when i wear blazers now i just i just feel like i i should be going to an office job that i don't have <laughs> anyhow i'm getting off topic but um i loved like andy's individuality in in the film and how she i mean she didn't quite have a place, I guess, in where she was. And she was definitely on the precipice of going to college, although we don't know where she's going, but we know she's a senior in high school. She got a scholarship to go to this this high school. She's got the most incredible style. She's the coolest seeming person, yet not everyone can see how cool she really is because all the 
this movie is so concerned with with class and haves and the have nots. Andy doesn't come through um, a family without very much money. Her father is kind of chronically underemployed and clearly long-term depressed from his wife, her mother, leaving, I guess, a few years earlier. And and so Andy's kind of taking care of her father and also trying to figure herself out. And um, there's this ruling class at the school of all the rich kids, I guess they call them richies. And then there are some like punk rock looking kids who hang out in the backyard and like neither of these two groups will mix. And she's sort of falling in between because she looks like one of the punk rock kids. But uh, you get the sense, like she asks her friend something like, don't you like, what do you want to do after, after this? Or like, don't you ever, would you ever date a guy with money or like, kind of like she's very ambitious. And I guess we're supposed to think that her friends, her uh, punk rock friends, can't really relate to her ambition so much. They're probably always going to stick around Chicago, but she, but Andy won't. But she isn't accepted by the rich kids because they're just so shallow, even though they're clearly going places with all the money and privilege that they have. Their, their parents probably just buy them a spot at like a, a really, really good school. And Andy has to kind of bootstrap herself. <laughs> and so, I, but I think I related to her, not so much in terms of the ambition, um, because my my grades were probably nowhere near what hers were uh, in, in high school, but I totally related, I think at the time, to just sort of falling in between groups and not really knowing yet where I fit and... I also just loved the music in this movie. And I think that's what we're here to talk about. I think I, I grew to appreciate the music in this movie so much more as a young adult in college. And as I got into college radio and I did one summer in, uh, at, I did an internship at a radio station and the, uh, the station was like focused at on like eighties alternative that, and this, Pretty in Pink, it's very like new wave and, and ultimately pop music focused, but wow. 80s alternative bands like like Psychedelic Furs and Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark feature so heavily. And and I've, I've always just like, this is one of my sweet spots as a music listener and music fan. Even like, I, I wasn't, I was just, I guess, being born <laughs> when these like- bands were in their... Uh, in their heyday, in their eighties heyday, but they they also have. I've seen a couple of them live, and the experience was, was just I imagine just as great as it was in the eighties. And I see I feel like a lot of this exact kind of new wave um, post punk and um, like electro influenced, and or just like like electronic pop influenced so many contemporary bands that like like I write about and listen to today so yeah there's in some ways like this the movie the plot there's (laughs) there's a lot that you couldn't do or say or whatever today there's a lot about that that, like doesn't hold up but the fashion absolutely does it's like such a great movie to look at and listen to it's such a treat for the eyes and the ears 
Yeah, every John Hughes movie has uh, problematic elements, let's say, things that maybe don't age um, so nicely or so wine-like, right? I feel like maybe this one is like the most, has the most like comfortability in terms of like, okay, I can I can kind of hang with, I think, most of the things in this film. Um, it's not 16 Candles, which I have a yeah. much longer list of issues with yeah let's Um, let's not let's not have the asian person get into 16 candles here yeah like so at least like um you know it takes a lot of the same tropes and i think tends to make it um a a little more heartwarming maybe some of that is in the direction as well it's not a john hughes directed film it's john hughes written and produced film right Mm -hmm. maybe that's some of it i don't know about you guys by the time i was mature enough to watch pretty in pink a lot of these songs were already so known to me, like they had, you know, outgrown like lots of soundtrack songs do like outgrown, outlived um, their moment and had just become kind of part of this cultural fabric. And now, like, you know, with context and kind of looking back at at how this soundtrack was built, it's crazy to think that a lot of these bands like in excess and like Echo and the Bunnymen like really weren't nobody really knew who they were at this point in time. And it would have been like really odd in whatever 1985 for like any of these kids to be listening to stuff like that on the fringe like like new wave from the uk mm-hmm. it works in the movie and it kind of like has that um outsider aesthetic to it like it works for who they are it's funny is like this movie's soundtrack <laughs> was so intentionally put together like it feels like like i've read in a number of look back essays and with certain people like remembering how this soundtrack came together that a lot of people have like described it as it, it, like as being an, it sounds like its own album apart from it being a soundtrack and I totally see that and mm-hmm. um, it's very cohesive despite yeah. have, despite containing different bands but it's got a point of view and Nicole what you said about some of these bands like at the time in excess and um echoing the Bunnymen maybe being a little bit more obscure for that time it kind of made me think that movie soundtracks were probably one of the ways that like listeners could find more obscure like overseas bands with that like this was a curatorial exercise. Right. And that's why they ended up just stuffing soundtracks in the nineties with like all these bonus songs. Cause it's like, Oh, we could launch more bands this way. Right. Well, and the fact that the title track pretty in pink is a re-record, right. Of yeah, a song that it? already existed. It's like the sax, like pop version, of, like a song that had already been recorded, but nobody really knew and hadn't gained all this popularity. And then it gave it this whole other, um, gigantic life is pretty wild to think about um i yeah, feel like not very yeah. many things are built that way this day like with that kind of intention like oh i'm john hughes i really think this song is like the heart of my movie i did read something yeah. about pretty pink like i guess the songwriter was like actually it's just the pink is her being naked <laughs> and yeah, not it has anything to do with clothing which is weird. I read the same thing. Well, I kind of want to get <laughs> the thing. I've also read that Molly Ringwald brought the song to John Hughes. Oh shit! Really? Yeah, yeah. That's supposedly what happened. Um, 
because the song is from 1981 and it's it's from um the psychedelic furs 1981 album talk 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 which is my favorite album because it also has um in the song into you like a train oh uh, yeah that's a good and one. i used to i used to put that on like every like i crushing on you uh, cd or like playlist <laughs> made the next <laughs> yeah that was like that was like my number one like i was such, still like a mix maker but it just looks differently now but yeah that was that was like my um my go-to for a while if i was making you like an i like you cd but um apparently molly ringwald um did bring the song to uh john hughes and that's how the the movie was named ultimately and then i read the same thing nicole that like that that's what i was saying before about like the like how this movie was taken kind of like literally <laughs> so yeah so hughes decides okay pretty in pink means she's wearing pink and like like drives a pink car and okay but yeah he really ran with the theme yeah yeah um it's i mean it's easy to like draw some let's see i'm trying to find like the best word that isn't get, like the best non-graphic word it's easy to draw some some anatomical conclusions about what pink means but... anatomical conclusions that's my new band name like... <laughs> <laughs> yes um but yeah i i get i think as opposed to a, a woman's anatomy it is just pink nakedness skin so just just the whole body right this am i right in getting that i you know honestly i read it and then i kind of shelved it like i put it in that place in my brain it's like no we're not acknowledging that because it feels okay um, yeah <laughs> but yeah maybe probably okay yeah. well never meet your heroes <laughs> i was like that's not that's not great this is not a fun fact I'm looking for fun facts. This was not the mission today, but but cool. Good to know. Very funny <laughs> that, as you said, it was uh, interpreted in the most literal way you could possibly imagine. So that part of it is amusing to me. I also saw a thing written where it was like, by by this point in like Hughes' history, this is kind of like his Return of the Jedi. This is like the third in a, in a trilogy, right? So there's already this very like shared universe. He's already a, a super big deal. His films are a big deal. So I guess by then, the intention to come together and to make a soundtrack and the demands that you can put on it are probably, he has a little more power to wield in this one than maybe he has previously. Um, so If You Leave is a good example of that, I think. Um, if You Leave by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, which is the the prom song at the yeah, end. Yeah, it just keeps Everyone going. Does. With the band, well, they also like made it so like, doesn't it like play for like ten minutes at the end of the yeah, band like like the the whole third act? Yeah, it's just like loops. It's on loop. I'm not complaining. I love that song. It's great, and the '80s loved like a a reuse like that. They were like, no, like we're just gonna Mm -hmm. reprise that like at some point, um, which you have to love. But I guess uh, OMD had a whole other song that they spent two months agonizing over. Like, oh, shit, we can't get this right. Okay, two months later, we have a song. Yeah. We send it to John Hughes. And then John Hughes is like, guys, um, big, big development. I changed the ending. <laughs> well, he didn't want to. He didn't want to. 
Yeah, I changed the ending because testing didn't go great. Um, and I think most people know this, but like the in the original ending, Andy ends up with Ducky. Test audiences hated it. They booed. And the ending gets changed. Uh, and so the song had to get changed. And then I guess he sent them to a studio and was like, okay, well, no, it's cool. I'm going to set you up with like all the best shit and you're going to be fine. And so mm-hmm. I guess they sweat bullets for 24 hours and then they wrote, if you leave. That, that original song was a uh, goddess of love, I guess, which I can't, I can't bring up in my mind's catalog. Like I would need to, I don't like, know I, it. I, like I think it does. It's like, cause I, I saw that they later rewrote and then released on the album, the, the Pacific age. So okay. goddess of love is out there. Uh, but yeah, I saw the same thing that, Oh, <laughs> I had no idea that OMD wrote, if you leave in less than 24 hours and i would you would never know it that is no like that is like a couple of artists responding well to pressure sometimes that works (laughs) yeah it reminds me um of purple rain where the director told prince like oh we need like a song for this montage and he comes back next day and like oh here's when doves cry I wrote this yesterday, you know. It's just silly. Yeah. yeah, it's Dolly Parton writing, you know, Jolene and um, I Will Always Love You in the same day. Like, sometimes I think something just clicks in. Or maybe sometimes it's, like, just deadline-driven pressure and insanity that right. like, tiny diamond. I don't know. I thought about it, and I'm like, oh, shit. Like, as somebody that works in a deadline environment, I'm like, somebody gave me that. <laughs> right? You have 24 hours. It's the end of the movie. Also, we play it. For like the entire third act. No big deal, but don't fuck it up. RuPaul voice. <laughs> that that needs to be um as I was researching a little bit for this episode, I was thinking like Aviv and I need to do an episode on If You Leave. But yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, because of just the, the comically long amount of time that it takes up. <laughs> but it also like justifies it somehow. It I don't know, it works yeah. like we're at a prom and this is the only song yeah. we play. Do you guys know if that like because the, the the two the two figures uh, up front is that actually like the uh, OMD guys at the at the front are they are they in? I think um, so. I want to say it might be because it's like it's like a live band. Like, it's a live at... band with just like two synthesizers, right? <laughs> and then they have like that big bat- picture backdrop behind them of yeah. like an orchestra. Like a black and white yeah. picture of an orchestra. Yeah. So I assume yeah. that's because they're orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if this is right, but somebody says the band playing in the pretty and pink scene is maybe this is a different scene. It. Oh no, that's the that's the scene in the club. Jake. Oh, the rave ups. Oh, I can't wait to get to that. Yeah, I'm excited thing. to talk about the rave ups. Yeah. Um, that's completely different. I don't know if they're in. I don't know. Somebody I, tell I us. They might not be. That. Yeah, but someone. It kind of looks like it, it's supposed yeah. to be them if it's not them. Like, I don't know if it's like a plug for yeah. them, you know? But I love this 80s trope of, like, all these proms being able being able to afford bands. Oh, wait, but maybe they could. Was that a th- I mean, I don't know. I didn't go to prom yeah. in the 80s. Maybe that was true. Maybe you could get bands on the cheap. I don't know. Because they, yeah, that I happened in Valley Girl, too. Yeah, it happens in, like, every 80s movie. But to be fair, I think it also happens in a lot of, like, 90s and aughts movies, mm-hmm. too, just because it's a better yeah. um, dramatic moment if you have a band. Yeah. Instead no of just a DJ. a DJ. <laughs> Unless that DJ is Usher, and, he, and he's taught you all that dance. Right. Do that dance I taught you. 
or it's one of the or if it's one of the uh, characters from the movie like one of the main characters nobody dj is also a really just words to live by yeah Yeah. i'm gonna have to Hmm. change that screenplay gonna take that dj out (laughs) well speak so speaking of screenplays and speaking of this this ending since we're on the subject of the ending and uh if you leave First of all, I don't know the other song. I don't know it um, in any way. I'm going to have to like look up the lyrics or whatever, but I wonder why it didn't work. Like why it wasn't interchangeable. Or was this John Hughes like nice way of saying like, I think we need a better prom song. I don't. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I did read somewhere that um, like somewhere there exists uh, like footage of the original ending with the original song. Oh, I need it. I spent a lot of time, like too much time. It's probably why I haven't researched other things. I spent too much time trying to find more about the original ending. One thing that I did find is that is John Cryer talking about how I guess they made some kind of pretty and pink like novelization that came out that was supposed to come out in conjunction with the movie. And because they changed the ending so abruptly, the ending in the book is the old ending. And so he's like, yeah, I have people like writing me like why you guys end up together in the end. Like what's going on with the ending in the book versus <laughs> in the movie? Well, um, for the record, do we support or are we team ending A or team ending B? Oh, God. I think we're <laughs> team. I think we're all team ending C. None of the above. Which, yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah, a magical thing. Uh it, we were talking about this a little bit before the before we started recording, but I feel like it's it's a best friend's wedding kind of ending that I wanted. I just wanted her to be like secure in herself. I'm on my own. Ducky, you're my friend, but I don't really need either of you. Like, I choose myself. I choose me. Um, would have been a great ending, but I don't know. Like when I was young, I really wanted her to end up with Ducky. I think because I have such heart for Ducky, um, being this kind of like weirdo outsider and getting a lot of i think kind of the best like comedic moments in the film i don't know whatever sucker for like a weirdo so i I, that at least they had things in common at least that made sense also sucker for a weirdo i am i i (laughs) couldn't relate more oh uh okay okay so i was gonna i didn't i didn't realize this until just now but um i was gonna ask is the movie some kind of wonderful supposed to be like a course correction redux yes i think so um and i don't know if john has ever openly admitted that but it has to be right has to be because it's gender reversed pretty in pink with the original ending i thought i read that somewhere yeah so i'm on its wikipedia page now which never take it at face value but but (laughs) uh brass tacks John Hughes wasn't happy with the ending of Pretty in Pink and um, blah, 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 test audiences, blah, blah, blah. So Hughes, with some kind of wonderful, decided to retell the story, but with the genders of the main characters switched. So there you go. So even he so wasn't satisfied oh, he, he hated having to change the ending. Yeah. But apparently yeah. the test the test screenings were so bad that people were booing. Yes. Which... Do you chalk that up to, um, I don't know, some kind of like confluence of social norms or expectations in the 80s? Do you chalk that up to never let audiences decide things like what? I just want to know because it's like I've never seen nobody's ever seen it. So how do you know, really, if it worked or it didn't? 
I, I don't know that you can just like say like across the board audiences should or shouldn't decide things because in certain cases like um this hasn't aired yet but aviv and i recorded an office space um episode of insync that will be in our second season and one of the main points was like we talk a lot about how gangster rap features in office space and whose decision was it and like Mike Judge was all for it, really wanted it. It was like a creative decision, but then the studio was very against it. But then they like Mike Judge was like, okay, well, let's just put it in front of a test audience and see what they say. And if they like Ooh. it, then we're we're gonna keep get the ghetto boys in there. And the test audience loved it so much that that like kind of pushed the soundtrack to uh, across the, the finish line and then there and now we have office space with um the songs that it's in there so like sometimes it works for you if other times it works again I, I was gonna say though i and this is just me purely theorizing here like i read that so who who were there were a number of like really attractive, not that not that John Cryer isn't attractive, but there were a lot of really like traditional like leading type men, I think, in line for the role of Ducky. And I read that mm-hmm. Molly Ringwald like really pushing for Robert Downey Jr. to play Ducky. Okay, and- well <laughs> that's totally different. That's those test audiences are not gonna root against RDJ. I, yeah, so I I think it might not not that John Cryer didn't totally kill it as Ducky, like he he is the duck, but there's like there's like an asexuality to him, and also I, yeah. I think I read that that um that like he was the way that that Molly Ringwald kind of played the relationship as though she were with her best gay friend. <laughs> I mean, honestly, in like in real life, yeah. Like in in the future, she predicts that she and Blaine don't um, stay together, and that her and uh, Ducky are still friends, but Ducky has come out as gay. <laughs> like that is that is her. I, like I guess uh, prior to stuck in the middle of this, like, yeah. did anyone ask me like, <laughs> how I was approaching this role? Um, no, it's totally true. Like, it, it's definitely like. I think that's why my best friend's wedding comes to mind because it's very mm. much like to me, at least like it's the same energy and the same dynamic that Julia Roberts and um, this is name Rupert something. Um, the gay best friend. And one of the Ruperts. Yeah. One of the Ruperts. You know, <laughs> aren't that many Ruperts. The fact that I can't remember is sad. But I know like, which Rupert you're referring to. <laughs> you know, that Rupert, the British one. Yeah, <laughs> same energy, right? Where it's like, okay, well, we're just gonna like have a dance and have a laugh at the end because, you know, whatever, life moves on and friendship is great. Uh, it's definitely that dynamic that they that they bring to it. So it's a friend chemistry and it's not a romantic chemistry. I think you just feel bad for Ducky because he does pine for her so hard, and while he's pining for her so hard and like singing Otis Redding in a record store, uh, you know, Blaine is basically doing nothing. Yeah, <laughs> like nothing. I bought you a coke. <laughs> I created a really, really proto version of of uh, AIM to talk to you. Oh yeah, across computers. We are DMing. 
<laughs> also, that's so funny. Also, like I can't get over like both uh, both Andrew McCarthy and James Spader in this film, and just their like feathery haircuts. And I oh like, yeah. growing up, like I just imagine them both like working for the Bush administration at some point. You know, oh, yeah, they're like oh, yeah. So they're both totally like Republicans. Fucking like, beyond, they, like it's beyond. Yeah, okay. they're totally like Reagan Republic. I mean, that's what that the whole thing like represents, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're all like they're green as good. Funny. And like awful, yeah. sort of the core. It's 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 really hard. It's hard to like any of them. It, and I don't know. Like it's hard to really feel charmed by Andrew McCarthy for me in this one. So I don't feel charmed yeah. by him. I don't feel romantic chemistry between Andy and Ducky. And so you're just kind of left with I think. And maybe it's maybe it was casting. Maybe it was casting, and that's why you end up with a confused ending. <laughs> The best yeah. love story in the movie is between Andy and her father. Oh, oh yeah, 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 good take. Well, that's a good take. Can I, I have good. to admit that I have a history of, like, in addition to weirdos, I have a history of liking total assholes. <laughs> because, <laughs> well, James Spader in this movie is much as like mm-hmm. he's a. Total you see where asshole. this is going. I know I know where it's going. Um, <laughs> he's my he's my inappropriate uh, movie crush for sure. Like it's never appropriate, but you just think about him a lot. I don't know. I've spent a lot of time over the years thinking inappropriately about James Spader. I guess. Oh, hundred percent. Secretary. A hundred. I'm so glad you brought up Secretary. <laughs> like the first. Just, um, <laughs> there's something about him that's simultaneously like off-putting and also very magnetic, even in like. Yeah fairly small roles even in like villain roles like this one where he is like truly a villain like when he really calls her a bitch in this movie like you feel it you know he's really good at being a villain but also like a really sexy sexy villain and <laughs> i also have like a history of liking the blondies i mean if you can see me i have like really really dark hair and you just like what you aren't <laughs> My my husband has really really blonde James Spadery hair, <laughs> so like, uh, I think we might have watched Pretty in Pink once together, and I was just like, this is like I had such a crush on James Spader and like a very inappropriate crush, and like, I'm I'm, I'm like Taylor, I'm really glad that you're as nice as you are. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Much better. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. James Spader is a weird one. I'm not proud, but you're not alone. It's okay. Watching him in this movie, I haven't seen this movie in a really long time. Um, I kind of forget that James Spader used to be a young man. <laughs> kind of like like when I watch Fast Times, I'm not like, oh yeah, Sean Penn used to be a young man too. Yeah, I mean, I haven't forgotten clearly, but uh, yeah, I get that. I get that. I also kind of think like whoever he is in the Office, like when he takes over on the show The Office, and he's like that Robert California character. That kind of feels like this character grown up a little bit too, in a way. That's funny. I forgot about that. <laughs> Well, also, I think James Spader has aged. Uh, not well, you know, he's aged. But he's lost a lot of that beautiful blonde hair, and he's rounded out some, as you do. No judgment that we all we all age. But I was going to say that I, I I bumped into uh, Andrew McCarthy's daughter on TikTok recently. Yes. And she makes You're a lot wrong. of vi- she makes a lot of videos of the two of them dancing. What? And it's it's really cute. And also he's aged beautifully. <laughs> he looks great. 
Well, he always Andrew McCarthy had like a very baby face, so I can see that mm-hmm. translating to um well into you know adulthood and maturity and all. That's great. I want to get into that. Mm-hmm. I love like nepo baby TikToks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really do. That whole Sophia <laughs> daughter thing lives rent free in my head. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally it was it was really like I know I I I'm glad I'm glad we can swerve off topic, but. Can I, can I just tell you real quick um, how much I still, like, live for the club scenes, like, the punk club scenes in this movie? Go uh, Going to that new wave post-punk club or Tracks? No, Tracks is the record store. Tracks is the record store, yeah. Yeah. I cannot recall the name of the club. Like, Cats? Something that, like, am I, I don't know, am I, am I totally off base? But whatever. Um, I want to go to this club in real life so bad. It's like I have like so I've so rare rarely seen such a fun looking eighties club experience where everyone's just like dancing kind of jerkily and the <laughs> and the rave ups are on stage. It's so awesome. But you no, can still totally. sit at a table. You can What's still that? sit at a table and have your coke. Yeah, you can sit at a table. I kind of miss that, too. Where did that go? Where did venues where you could, like, sit at a table go? <laughs> I don't think I've ever been to... Wait, no, that's not true. I think in London. I, I, I did a semester abroad in London, and there weren't tables, but there were booths. This was, like, prime indie sleaze era London. See, first of all, jealous. Second, I feel like that was a thing at one point. And then obviously, like, capitalism decided, like, well, we can't pack enough people in here. Why are you all sitting down? And no, this isn't going to work. When was the last time you guys went to a club? <sighs> Proper club? Mm-hmm. It's sad that I don't remember. It's probably going to take no. some time. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, I think it might have, or at least for me, it might have been Malcolmus at the Roxy. Oh, well, I was there oh, for that. Fun. That's right. The Roxy counts as a club. Does it? Oh, great. Then for right. me, it would be really recent, too. They have booths and stuff there. True. That's true. I haven't sat in any, but I think I've seen them. <laughs> for me, it was metric at the Roxy. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that'd be closer to this sort of thing than Malcolm. Right. 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 No, that's true. That's true. There was some dancing. Um, yeah, I, but like, I think high school, Rachel watched these scenes of Andy and, uh, and Leona and Ducky in the club. And I'm like, that's where I want to be. That's what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I'm sitting here trying to find the filming location and I can't find it, but this was all shot in LA. LA is just the stand-in for Chicago, which makes no sense, but it's <laughs> where they shot it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It tracks the record store is somewhere on like the third street promenade. Oh my God. So. Yeah. It does feel like more set PC, right? In certain ways. Yeah. Then um, I think, like like a previous Hughes films do. Like they all feel more a bit more lived in. Yeah, it's not giving quite as much Chicago as, you know, mm-hmm. like a Ferris Bueller for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think like I had an overarching feeling of this is like a feeling I've always kind of gotten in my gut like while watching Pretty and Pink. Is like, Andy, you are so cool. 
you are so much better than like all these people who give you a lot of shit. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know the point is she's 18. She doesn't really know herself yet. She's still figuring herself out, but she's got like this cool ass job that tracks. She's got the best style. It's her style. She's doing something new and different. She's got cool friends. She's got a cool place to go. She's got Leona, who, like, can I just oh. say for a minute that, Many like, appreciation society. I know. Okay. Like, if you want to feel, if you really want to feel old, <laughs> listen to Annie Potts talk about how old she is. Oh, like, no. How old was she when she made this movie? She was somewhere in her 30s, I think. Okay. Maybe early 30s. Pretty sure she's younger than I am now. But she references, like, I could be his mother. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. like, every every Leona, um, like, piece of dialogue is her talking about how old she is and how she's got to, like, figure out her life or what is she doing with her life? She's so old. I could, yeah, like, I could be his mother. Right. <laughs> you're supposed to find it really radical. Like, you're supposed to look at her as some kind of grandmother in, like, you know, punk rock garb. Um, I never really looked at her that way, but you're right. Like, the movie tries to make you feel like she's super transgressive. And maybe at the time that is was true. Yeah. Well, in the 80s, I feel like they wrote, there, was, there was a lot more concern about where you fit. Where do I fit? Am I a Richie or am I like somewhere in the punk scene or like am I a townie or I don't know like (laughs) if I'm this age shouldn't I have done this by now and like you didn't have communities of I mean if the internet's been good for one thing it's just bringing people of who feel different for different quotes for whatever reason puts them in the same quote-unquote room together and then people can trade life stories more easily but i don't know the 80s seemed very concerned with like where do i go almost like the 50s a bit you know what i mean it's like yeah mm-hmm. it, like yeah like uh if the 60s and 70s were this incredibly transgressive time of like free thought then like the 80s was almost like a buttoning up of that oh yeah for sure yeah. yeah, absolutely. This is where I like say a really long thing about Christian Bale's mm-hmm. whole character arc in Velvet Goldmine, but I won't. So <laughs> we're going to not talk about the 80s as being like a very regressive period, I feel like, that backed away from a lot of um, sort of the freeness and creativity of like the late 60s and, and 70s. But yeah, it's like, it. I think ultimately your point about her being so rad is sort of why it's disappointing that she feels she has to end up with anyone. And they- Yeah, like Andy, just see yourself. You're so cool. Like, just see how cool you, you look and, and are. You, yeah, sorry, don't, I didn't even interrupt you. No, I, feel no, pa- I feel very passionately about this. No, You I can end up I- later with a pet store owner. <laughs> and even he has agency to be like, I'm more than that. Yeah. Yeah, she's just she's better. She's better than that. But she, you know, as you pointed out, she doesn't see it yet. And so you're supposed to be like, okay, well, she's she's figuring it out. But yeah, the fact that that everybody doesn't see her as like the towering goddess that she is is also kind of like odd. <laughs> Maybe they should have casted Lori Laughlin instead. Uh, tell me that wasn't an option. It was 
it was an option, I guess. Well, I mean, John Hughes was not going to cast anyone else. But The chance of Lori yeah. Loughlin is never zero. <laughs> zero. Yeah, that, that uh, Robert Downey Jr. casting possibility, though, is very, like, distracting for my brain. Because now all I can do is, like, I try to insert him in the dungeon. And then being like, oh, that ending would work. That ending would work. Mm-hmm. Because, like, 80s RDJ was a smoke show. And people would be about that. They would. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel like you can also pull off this kind of, like, nerdy, outsidery character as well. Because he's good like that. I'm so sorry, John This feels like just John Cryer Eraser. (laughs) I do like how they gave him a a romantic possibility, like at the end. I I did always kind of like how that one, uh, what's her name? Christy. uh, She went on to, was she, um, wasn't she Buffy? Yeah, Christy Swanson. Yeah. She gets like a a second of screen time and she's kind of giving Duffy the eye at the prom. Yeah, yeah. And his physical comedy and like pantomimes and and like his line delivery in this movie is is really great. And so it is kind of also hard to like suck that out because I think he brings a lot of the entertainment and the heart and like the center of this movie for me. Um, I feel like so many of these song references too couldn't really happen without him or at least without his character. I, I love the idea of just kind of um, I like to live in like fictional record stores and I feel like Tracks is such a great <laughs> fictional record store and it's got like Smith's posters on the door and it just feels like a place that you would want to that you would want to spend time and so much of that feels like his place I mean it, you know hers as well right but like it really feels like that's their domain when he's in his room and he's being like all emo to the Smiths. <laughs> Mm-hmm. To like, please, please let me get what I want. Like, that's, that's who can't relate to that, right? That's like what that song is for. <laughs> it's yep. a great tactical use of that song. Who hasn't been there? I what? forgot actually where they placed that song. I was like, yeah. well, of course that, of course that, like, please, please let me get what I want is in, yeah. is in it's this It's as literal movies. as it yeah. could possibly be, okay? Like, yeah. like yeah. you said, a really <laughs> literal movie. Like, oh, where would we put yeah. that? Oh, we're thinking about how he can't get what he wants because he can't have Andy. Yeah. I also like thinking about John Hughes and like, is John Hughes a Smiths fan? Or does John Hughes really just like this one Smith song because he also puts it mm-hmm. in Ferris Bueller? There's like yeah. the museum scene where you get like the music version of that song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think about that sometimes. I'm like, I wonder if he listens to any other. Maybe not. Maybe he didn't. I don't know. I think I think the the music version of that song was the first time I heard "Please, please let me get what I want" and didn't realize that it stood stood by itself as an yeah. actual song. Yeah. You know who I really didn't realize was um, on the soundtrack though was Suzanne Vega. I had no idea. No idea. I didn't know yeah. until this podcast that that was her. Right. I was like, that's her. But when, you, but once you know it's her, you're like, then oh yeah, that like, is Susan I can't Vega. hear it. Yeah, yeah. it's because she has yeah. a very distinctive voice. Mm-hmm. But I had no clue. I read that um, she thought that, like, she like speaking of putting all this time and energy into a song. I read that she really tried to make left of center like the center like she thought it was going to run over like the end credits or something and then it just ends up being uh like a diegetic play over like, as on the radio as people are talking or something like that and so that's probably why i had the way that's probably why i missed it 
Yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of um, it doesn't really register that hard, and I can see why we all like missed it for a really long it time. Is. And I guess it, that also points to like her, you know, just trying to do the best job she possibly could. Like at this point, if you're on a John Hughes soundtrack, like you're kind of made, right? Right. This uh, is the follow up to Breakfast Club. Right. So you're made. You have the same soundtrack supervisor, David Anderley. And like everyone is like re-recording things for the soundtrack. Like New Order is like, here's some instrumental versions. You can't put it on the soundtrack, but you can put it in the movie. <laughs> right. Well, that's also an odd thing. Like a lot of the songs in this movie do not make it on the soundtrack and uh, the soundtrack proper. So there are things that I associate with this that do not show up. Um, mm-hmm. we, were, we were talking about the OMD, like why the OMD song that they recorded didn't match, why Goddess of Love didn't match. So I guess it's twofold. So Hughes... Asked them for a new song to match the feel of the ending with different lyrical content. But then he also, I guess, came in and he was like, yeah, you should write the new song at the tempo of 120 BPM to match the speed of Don't You Forget About Me. So speaking of The Breakfast Club, I guess that's the song that the actors dance to at the end. So he wanted it to match. I know that. That's cool. And David Anderley, the soundtrack supervisor, was the one that convinced uh, what's the band oh uh, Simple Minds Simple Minds he, he convinced them to write Don't You Forget About Me for uh, Breakfast Club oh wow okay so it's a lot of convincing people to like hey this is going to be good for your career anyhow uh, Breakfast Club only has really like what one two three songs oh. featured within it yeah Right. And, and just um, like a score, but then mm-hmm. like a few contemporary hits and then um, Pretty in Pink is just like packed. Total, yeah. Total, total inverse. It's like wall to wall bangers. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. it's not as um, it's definitely not as music forward or as like concerned for a reason, maybe because it's more of like a capsule and they're they don't didn't really have like. Yeah, yeah, opportunities. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. trying to remember the song it's... they dance to when they're doing like all the stupid dance shit on top of the library. But I will find out and tell you. <laughs> like, there's that, <laughs> and then there's the end. This is like how that's how my brain remembers it. But I don't know if that's real. There's a lot of yelling. Yeah, yeah. We are not alone. We are not alone. Yeah, and it's like not. Yeah. It's, I think it's Carla kind of like, Devito. Dang it. Forgettable, forgettable song in a way. Like you could interchange it with other things and it wouldn't. Right. It's not an iconic song for like it's a fairly iconic scene, but not an iconic song. I feel like it could have been an iconic song. I mean, it's it's really got so so We Are Not Alone is by Carla DeVito and it it totally has like scandal warrior energy. Like one of my favorite 80s power ballads. Okay, yeah. I mean, maybe it just didn't, I don't know, didn't get it. It didn't get it sticky, didn't get its due the way, like, I mean, Pretty Pink being so set up around music from, you know, the the title track being the movie um, mm-hmm. to everything being set in kind of a record store and music being, like, very important to the characters in the film. It's just a very different, um, it's a different setup. It's a different approach. Mm-hmm. And there's a prom. And there's a prom. <laughs> Helpful. <laughs> So it's interesting that like the bands that play at this club, like none of them are featured on the soundtrack. 
So like right. I probably didn't know who the rave ups were until like I watched it with like more focus on like, well, who is this band? Right. So much stuff gets left out. You know something that has always kind of tickled my brain? So to me, the rave ups are one of the more obscure eighties bands. And um like I think they're from Pittsburgh and they go to LA and they have like a minute of um like their their minute in the sun. But they if you look at how many people have been in the rave ups over the years, they have a huge rotating cast. And uh they they've kind of sunken into just like the, the, the overall like they've gotten swallowed up by the stands of time. That being said, like do you guys, I don't know if you guys are into uh, reality TV at all, or if you ever like listen uh, to uh, what's his name, Reality Steve's podcast. This has no real connection to like the the, the John Hughes universe of what we're talking about, but uh, and I'm not even like big that big on like basically Reality Steve is he's he's a guy he's a blogger he has a podcast he. His, his role in um, the reality TV world is spoilers. He just spoils everything. And <laughs> some people really want that. And he, and on his, um, his podcast, like the intro music is positively lost me like that. Like, so he uses the song at the beginning, like guitar riff of positively lost me uh, to, to intro his weekly biweekly podcast about, reality tv and and that's always like kind of blown my mind because i'm like how, how the f does uh reality steve know about the rave ups like like that's so random how like who told him about this song <laughs> is he or is he just a really big fan of um pretty in pink maybe i would know this if i like listened more to his podcast or or cared more about reality he's kind of a divisive figure i think like in the reality tv world <laughs> well, now I need to know more. First of all, I need to know more about reality, Steve, and why he's controversial. I kind of want to spoil everything for me. Well, yeah, like I, I think of him the most uh, with like The Bachelor because I think he might have gotten his start around like the back of The Bachelor's been around for the longest of most right. of the, the TV shows he talks about, and I think ABC probably really doesn't like him like he he hasn't generated very much good faith with the with the bachelor universe because like nobody wants their stuff spoiled <laughs> like uh producers yeah. go producers go to great lengths and, and and uh networks go to great lengths to keep their their programming um spoiler free but with, with the internet and social media it becomes harder and harder and so with that reality steve and and anyone trying like doing spoiler content they're going to have like a niche following and so uh people who know contestants who go on the bachelor will hit up reality steve and be like hey this person isn't here for the right reasons here are the receipts like, i've got the, te the texts and the emails to prove it and then uh if, yeah so reality steve he's kind of, he's kind of like uh like a like I got like a journalist sort of because he has to he thinks he's um looking into stories and what is the story and what isn't the story but he, he has no formal training that I'm aware of. <laughs> anyway, like always I relate. 
<laughs> I, I've always just been like completely confounded at like, how did you get positively lost? Like, how did you know about the rave ups and, and how did you come to use this song? This is just a, a question that lives on in my mind because like, but, I don't know. know. If we're all sitting here talking about the rave ups and it and mm-hmm. it's in a, you know, whatever seminal movie for a lot of people, then then maybe reality Steve's maybe his rabbit hole started right there, you know? Sure. Who knows? Right? That's it's I, I think it's powerful enough and known enough to to do that. It could be where you could unravel the start to unravel the sweater. Sure. Sure, sure. Maybe it's not. Oh, maybe yeah. it's not as complicated as I'm making it out to be. Well, I don't. Know. I mean, or or it is, yeah. or he's like I don't know. There, he was their road manager or something. Yes. <laughs> so, do we know? Do we know how the rave ups ended up ended up in okay. the movie? I don't. No, I don't. So, uh, so I was watching the movie on uh, Amazon Prime, and I was using the X ray so I could like figure out when songs are popping up and stuff. And I saw this fact, and it blew my mind. Molly Ringwald's sister has a kid with the lead singer of the rave ups oh what nice so, so when cool. she was a teenager like her sister was dating the guy and then you know she liked the music so she brought it to john hughes john hughes then i guess went to go see one of their shows and then had them test uh do a test uh, for pretty in pink wow that's, that's actually so cool. very cool and i think in breakfast club i think she writes like like it's etched into like her binder the rave ups Oh, no way. All right. Well, once again, like, I guess this is why it's so easy to, for her to bring this kind of, like, casual coolness to her characters because, like, she was legitimately really fucking dope. Like, I'm just going to casually bring my director some psychedelic furs. My is sister it? has a baby with this dude from this band who would be great or for this thing. It's a dating the dude. Yeah. Yeah. So he, she was his muse and a spectrum of ways yeah she she just had good taste yeah that yes that's the thing she just has and you and you sent and even though like i think through like a modern lens i know people talk about this a lot like what the fuck is the dress at the end (laughs) i feel like the dress in itself like incredibly divisive the dress is as divisive as the ending maybe yeah (laughs) it kind of looks like a tube sock it does it's to me it's not even like like it's a not even like the that he ch- she chooses. It's like the it's the, it's the shape, you know. Yeah, it's <laughs> the shape, and then it has no shape. And it's got yeah, a collar, exactly. and it looks like she's got swim floaties on. And... <laughs> yeah. I, I like like everything from like like the collarbone up. I'm kind of into like I like yeah. the way she kind of makes like a lace collar. But I, I think I think she should have just like picked one dress or the other dress. She tried to like yeah. snooze the dresses. And she should have instead maybe just like t- taken some like a, like a little bit of of option A and and applied to option B and like let one really steal the show instead of trying to just like hybridize them. <laughs> yeah, she really it's an <laughs> atrocious silhouette. It's like you said, like from up, from yeah. shore up, not bad. Like you're in the tight really- shot. You're okay. I'm in it. And then they pan out, and you're like, oh no. She what literally is, needed to tie the two storylines of her life together. <laughs> she yeah. had to sew them together. Yeah, the the dress is symbolic. The dress is symbolic. The dress is symbolic, and it's also historically bad, in my opinion. I know. The least cool thing she does in the movie, which is really unfortunate. I do feel yeah. like 
the movie re- at the prom moment just really there are some choices that get made i often find that with john hughes movies there's always a couple of moments where like choices are made and then you just kind of have to you got to argue with them reckon with them for the next like 25 years of your life like the alley she <laughs> over and the breakfast club is a great example yeah, yeah. It, it does feel like he specializes in moments that can only happen in that moment. And, like, it leaves it to the audience to, as you said, like, reckon with and, and, and try to, like, create a timeline for. for the, <laughs> Like, this can't last. You know this can't last. This would never happen. Right. Or shouldn't happen. Shouldn't be an abomination that shouldn't be. You, yeah. you know what's what's also hilarious about this ending that we all seem to not be very happy with is they had to come back and reshoot it, right? So Andrew McCarthy was shooting a play in like London and had shaved his head. Oh, fuck. He has to wear a wig, right? Yeah, he's That's wearing a wig and he had like lost weight. No. <laughs> just just yeah, for this really tacked on ending. <laughs> I I don't remember it looking like a wig. That's a pretty good wig. A good wig supervision. Yeah, remember there. how much shit we gave, gave Henry Cavill for his weird mustache removal from <laughs> <laughs> Justice League because he was shooting Mission Impossible that. at the time. I loved it though. It's I mean, Andrew something. McCarthy's straight up wearing a toupee. I'm gonna have to study his hairline. Oh, I have no idea. Now I want to be I like. Didn't know either. Because I was like, he does look different because I guess he also lost weight. So I guess this breakup really took a lot out of yeah, him. Yeah, he, he, that, that, that's like grief weight. Yeah, he's lost He's lost sleep. He has, yeah, he's lost five pounds. That's he hasn't so been funny. in the mood in, to in ride like, his in horses. Like two days. I mean, I can't, I can't clock it. I really can't. That's a good lace front. <laughs> Honestly, James Spader's hair looks more like a wig than his <laughs> hair. Oh no! You know, sometimes um, it's also uh, kind of on topic, but as you get older, you start to notice hairlines and wigs that you didn't used to notice. Well, normally I I get like I, normally I will I can notice it. I feel like I feel like I'm pretty good at clocking a wig in a movie. Like okay. Well, I feel like that. I am now, but I feel like I did not used to be. I feel like I I would just take whatever was given to me and be like, okay, I accept it. Yeah, I'm. I'm. St- <laughs> I still do that. I think. I think I'm just like I'm. I'm here for the the ride. That is yeah. your hair, if you say it is. <laughs> I want to be naive about it. I do. I want to go back in time, but I feel like I've gotten too good at just knowing. Like that's a wig. <laughs> a lot of situations. <laughs> This one though yeah. is good. I can't. I don't know where it ends and begins. <laughs> nice. Job. Well, maybe the maybe the eighties were a good time for wigs, but only because hairstyles looked themselves wiggish. Right. No. They're very wiggish. Yeah. Very wiggish. Yeah. Like helmet like kind of. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. They were yeah. So they were already yeah. so over the top that. Yeah. Exactly. Like you couldn't really get away with that probably in the early 2000s where everyone was like straightening the hell out of their hair what i will say is if you compare pictures of him in the prom scene to pictures of him earlier in the movie there you can kind of start to see it like you can start to see a difference in the way that it's uh laying yeah i totally see it now yeah like like earlier in the movie his hair look, looks more natural and then later his, it looks more coiffed 
much more quaffed. But again, I I point you to James Spader and his just looks like a wig throughout the entire movie. Like, I don't even know. Yeah. I think he's he, he looks like he's always like he's needed to go bald. Like, like it's not natural for him to have hair. Right? Like, <laughs> like you think it should just lift off and it's like, yeah. I don't know. I disagree. I feel so I still see him in this like. Yeah, sorry. I mean, glorious, I, I, like waving. I think between this movie and like the practice, like I don't think I saw much of James Spader. So I just remember him as like an old man. I mean, fair. <laughs> this was a long time ago. So he has been older for a long time. Yeah. He has aged like the rest of us. Didn't this. he also do uh, a stint in like Boston Legal? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like, he, won, he won an Emmy for both. Yeah, I for playing the same character smell. in two different shows. Just give it out Emmys for yeah. anything. My grandfather is a really big Boston Legal fan, or was, but I don't think Boston Legal is on anymore. Maybe it is. I don't know. Probably but I, not. I, yeah, I remember trying to trying to like relate a little bit. Like, oh, I've never seen that, but I sure like James Spader. <laughs> Fifteen <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Yeah, like the young James Spader, the young James. Well, and also I guess approaching middle age James Spader. Then there's also Crash, right? Wasn't he in Crash? Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes. I've not seen that. It's on my. It's like on my list. I I've been meaning to watch it. Uh, let's talk some Echo and the Bunnymen before uh, we get out of here. Oh, good call. Yeah. Yeah. So I got into Echo and the Bunnymen like in like my like late teens i think it's because pavement did a cover of one of their songs and i was like oh they must be uh-huh. good and so i bought like this best of thing and it had bring on the dancing horses which mm. was like my favorite song but like everything else i was like what the hell is this and i was like this <laughs> like you know they were such a weird band until like they started getting popular and then and then you get this and you get like lips like sugar but like like their early output it's like oh this is like really like kind of out there I um I have like the most film cliche, like film to music cliche getting into Echo and the Bunnymen um example because I got into like I found out who they are were basically just through Johnny Tarko. Right. Yeah. They were featured so heavily. We all did. I mean I think I know. we all did. I That's why it's so cliche. There's like nothing interesting yeah. about it. <laughs> it was just like, oh, I like this. It's moody. It's the kind of thing that, like, truly, um, like, older Gen X folks probably, mm-hmm. like, would roll their eyes at. Like, really? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure plenty um, of people with 10 years on me are rolling their eyes Yeah. At me. And that's fine. They yeah, reserve that yeah, right. But okay. I'm in the same exact... Yeah. Um, I'm in the same exact cohort where I think that was... Uh, I think that was the exposure for a lot of us, which is fine. But Echo and the Bunnymen are great. They've also really grown on me over the years. So I feel like... Um, I don't know. There's there's something about them that I like much more than I used to. And um, this is, Bring on the Dancing Horse is a great song. His still slaps. <laughs> great song. And and Echo and the Bunnymen, I feel like like along with um, like Depeche Mode and these uh, like OMD and eighties alternative bands that like played around since and were kind of the first to do it. Like you just hear so much echo. <laughs> um, like I, I love the through line of this strain of eighties pop. 
mm-hmm. into um, like more contemporary acts, especially like in the aughts and then the 2010s. I think like there's like a really good 20 year span. No, I think you're right. I think it's um, I feel like for myself, I, I didn't have I don't really have an appreciation for like synth and new wave the way that I do now. And I think it's a reaction thing to all of that sound getting so diluted um, and so popular for so long that it just came to kind of like good and bad, like dominate everything that you heard uh, on the radio in the late eighties. <laughs> and so I think, I think my first instincts for a long time was just to kind of like shut that out um, mm. And I've grown, like, um, I think a better appreciation for all of that and for that genre, like, over time. I also had a teenage sister. She's, like, 12 years older than me. So she truly Mm -hmm. is in that cohort of, like, you know, people that Mm -hmm. were, like, whatever. She was, like, writing Simple Minds and stuff. And, Mm -hmm. like, loved from Depeche Mode, like, in her textbooks. And I was, like, four. So you react to things that are like, you know, I I think that it was like a reaction. And now I feel like that's, it was unfair. I unfairly reacted. My sister uh, had that's, it right. That's fair. That's totally fair. I think college radio is really ultimately what, what got me into most of these bands, really, because um, my parents were too, they were, I think, a decade before, like all their favorite music was from like the 60s and the 70s. And then they, they just were cut off at the 80s. And so most of the 80s tunes that I heard were in 80s movies like this one. And then um, in college, I got in you know, all the contemporary bands I was listening to really like probably a lot of them took, like, especially like indie sleeves types. Of, and we didn't call it indie sleeves then, but that's what we're calling it right. now, apparently. <laughs> like that's really what it was, though. Like it's actually mm-hmm. one of the few terms where I'm like, yeah, that works. Yeah, it, no, it totally, it totally fits. And, and I think like, for me listening to a lot of the maybe more like post-punk influenced bands from the like the new york y2k like meet me in the bathroom era like interpol is the only name really jumping to mind right now and also for sure metric and and then eventually like mgmt and what like crystal castle and and copy and stuff and like all these bands probably were super straightforwardly um into like joy division and yeah like echo and the bunny men of course new order psychedelic Bird. like there was such a i don't know like through line that I, I probably didn't put together too much until i started you know writing about music for a living honestly and kind of seeing how one era impacts the other and but I do know for sure that just as like a music listener, this like era of music for me has always been one of my favorites because, um, and when I say always, I mean mostly like 18 and after because it, it's just, it mixes the light and the dark so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, like the synth melodies sound so bright and um, a lot of them like have beats, like clubby beats that are easily re- remixable that you just, you just want to move to but then like lyrically there's such a a lot of it's very depressive and you know bittersweet and i like there are so many like bits of music and like swedish pop it's kind of another one that i've always gone back to that mixes the light and the dark so well um 
so yeah this just like scratches that itch for me <laughs> yeah i mean the ingredients of like some really powerful pop songs i feel like and that's probably why like i think this movie in particular endures i think sometimes it's less for me about the movie and more about the music cues because they're so like mm -hmm. consistently great from the opening to the closing like they just build so much of the drama for you I yeah. can't not hear the sax. I can't. Like, even though yeah. that's maybe not like the ideal version of the song, you know, in in the context of the movie, it's super powerful. And you know, like from the jump. And it was so extra. I mean so extra. This 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 movie is uh it, <laughs> this definitely captures an aesthetic era. I mean, if, if the eighties was like more is more, I feel like adding <laughs> adding sax to um Right. Like a, a song that like came out in 81 it just it just makes total sense for right. a movie that's like capturing that more is more era and then all you know with all like the layers and like the the madonna inspired clothes and whatever but i i, I actually made a special note because I, I felt like this phrase perfectly summed up um the both the movie and the soundtrack and I was just I was just looking back at um the, the Wayback machine a 2013 roundup of Rolling Stone like Right, it's just like a roundup of best movie soundtracks, and uh, Rolling Stone called the soundtrack like they describe it as lavish sadness. And I just <laughs> thought that was, I just thought that was so on point. That's so on point. Lavish yeah. sadness is what it is. Like mm -hmm. sadness, but just make it like. Massive. I know, and I love I I love that. I love lavish sadness. <laughs> That's also a good band name. Yeah, yeah. it is a good yeah. band name. I was gonna say that. It's like it's like a better way of saying the beauty and the breakdown, which is like gives me icky two thousand four Zach Braff <laughs> vibes. <which I'm> <laughs> yeah, no, true. Regarding eighties like pop music with the light and the darkness, I was interviewing uh, Blake Schwarzenbach from uh, Jawbreaker. Like, I don't know, this like ninety nine Jets or yeah Jets Brazil era, and he and he said something about the eighties. He was like, you know. Um, you have to like remember like the 80s like everyone is like afraid of like nuclear war and like that informs like so much of the fashion and the and the music i think with you know they're like there's this like existential fear mm. oh yeah that's a good one that's a good one or that's like good. get it all out while you can yeah yeah it's a little bit like uh i don't know like a gross like an end of end of the world mm -hmm. kind of Mm -hmm. little roaring 20s but make it more like armor protected with shoulder pads or something yeah we're gonna we're gonna get a little <laughs> mad max in here you know <laughs> i think oh that's the gosh. other thing like growing yeah. up you know, like shoulder pads and a lot of these like trappings of kind of um mm -hmm. the, that era aesthetically like they very much belong to people that were not me they belonged to like my mom and my much older mm -hmm. sisters that were like it was very much kind of like a cloaked in mystery kind of thing like why is that happening why is all of that happening um i don't know if that i spent a lot of time as like a five-year-old thinking about nuclear war so i'll have to ask them if that was what the pantsuits well, we, were about we grew up in like the like a like a blip of peace and prosperity right we did which yeah. is like probably why we didn't get to <laughs> echo and the bunny myth for a while <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were just chilling you know? Thank you, Rachel, for being back on our podcast. Thank you for having me. So you guys are on a break, but if people want to find the first season of InSync, uh, where can they find you? You can find InSync on 
any chosen um, podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, we're, we're on any of them, all of them. Also, you can find us on the internet by, uh, I think most of our handles are the InSync pod. And we're on, we're on TikTok, Instagram. Um, I think we're on X <laughs> or Twitter, but I don't know how much longer that will last. <laughs> and you can find us on Soundtrack Cast at on Twitter, on Instagram, and uh, we're like soundtrackcast.bsky.social if you want to check out Blue Sky, which is not as exciting as I thought it would be. <laughs> Threads. Or you can go to Threads. Maybe we'll do Threads. We'll have a cool uh, Best of Music um, Patreon episode coming out at the end of the year. And um, thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Thank you.